0: Maybe you have heard of the preacher of the old school. Uh, The truth is that he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his congregation. Who is this man? He travels the globe. He actually speaks in every language. He visits the poor, but he also calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion, and people of no religion. The subject of his sermon is interesting because it's always the same. He is, some would call, the most eloquent preacher, stirring feelings, certainly, which no other preacher can, bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments of this particular preacher, none can refute, nor has any heart remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. What's interesting about this particular individual is he shatters life with his message. The truth is, is that most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. And one day, the truth is, is that every one of us, maybe I can put it in the second person, every one of you will be His message. I mean, every age and every heart struggles with the finality of the grave and the incomprehensibility of death. The Scriptures tell us, does Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Praise God. Amen? That our Lord has defeated death. Take your Bible this morning. I want to take you to one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And you'll note as you turn and open there as we just continue in the hottest thing going in the church today, which is the exposition of the word of God, the consecutive exposition of the word of God. I listened to a a podcast this week where the pastor speaks in four week messages it's it, most people are doing that and i'm not here to criticize that god could use that he could use that kind of topical preaching and then he goes on to the next message and, and he said this on his podcast on whatever stirring in his heart and i thought that's exactly the reason we don't do that because i don't think you want to hear what the stirring of my heart is Every four weeks, I think you'd rather have a word from the living God out of the text and in context. And so we open back to John chapter 11. And you'll note there as you look down in your Bible that chapter 11 is fairly long. It runs through verse 57. And though it may contain 57 verses, it really just contains one story, one true story, one account. It is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is a stunning miracle. In fact, just to move you forward, in 11.43, when he had cried these things, he cried out with a loud voice, did Jesus, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen, strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. (laughs) Could you imagine being at that point? I think some scholars would say that they're glad that he said, Lazarus come out so that every grave didn't open across the globe. But it is a stunning miracle, and I think we can do the miracle. I think we can do it in five weeks, do you? You probably doubt that I could cover that much territory, but I think we can. Five sermons, I believe, and it's a narrative, and so we'll look at 11, 1 through 16 today. But I would say to you and submit to you this morning... Raising Lazarus from the dead is the most dramatic of all of his miracles, or maybe I should say the most dramatic of all of his signs. Somebody has called the gospel of John, the book of signs, and he gives us seven distinct signs, and I think those will come up on the screen. We've already looked at the first six, don't need to review them, but the sign, or we can call it the miracle, but John Very well, doesn't call him a miracle. He calls him a sign. It's the sign of the water turning into wine. We looked at that one. The sign, secondly, of the nobleman's son that he healed that man with great sickness from a distance. Jesus gave the word. He healed the man on the stretcher or the man who was laid at the pool in chapter 5. 38 years, they just used to lay him at the pool and he told him, rise up and walk and he did. Then there was the sign of the loaves and the fishes where he fed 5,000 men, which would probably be conservative to say that he fed somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people. That's a remarkable sign. I was at a wedding yesterday. Uh, There must have been 400 people there. That is a production. But could you imagine just feeding 20,000 people, multiplying the loaves? You can listen to that online. Then there was the sign of walking on water, He has power over water. He just walked on top of it. Then there was the sign, you remember, in the previous chapter, at least chapter 9, of the man who was born blind that he gave sight to. These are six extraordinary signs. But you might be left asking the question, how far could that power extend? Could it, in fact, you might ask, reach beyond the grave To a rotting corpse? Lazarus had been in the grave four days. And I think later in the text, as you will see in the weeks to come, I think it was in the King James, you remember that line? He stinketh by now. I mean, four days in the grave. Could his power get greater than the first six signs? Yes, it would reach into a grave and take one who stinketh and raise him From the dead. So here's the seventh sign. It's chapter 11. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And I do believe that he saved the best for last. Now maybe people could argue against that. But I I think that's true. And here's why. It's not that he's not raised people from the grave. In other portions of the gospel. In fact you might even remember in your Bible reading. In Luke 7. He raised the widow's son from the grave. Pretty quickly after he had died. You might remember in Luke chapter 8 that Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. But those resurrections were immediately after death. Again, Lazarus was raised four days after decomposition set in. Honestly, beloved, who could do that? Name one person. Name one religion in the world. I mean, something's going on here in John chapter 11. You say, well, what's at stake? Well, there's one purpose in it, in all of 11, and I want you to put your eyes on it. It's in 11.4. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness, 11.4 of John, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. There it is. It's for the glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified or literally that He might be revealed through it. God's glory is the greatest theme in the universe. God's glory is the theme of our church. That is the nature. That is the character of God being revealed. And while we're studying that here, we have leaders over in the children's revealing the character of God. And obviously, I preached on that a few weeks back. In in December, here, his glory is his nature and character revealed. Revealed in creation, obviously revealed in redemption, obviously. But supremely, that glory is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But here, let me say that these signs point to his glory in three distinct ways as we open this chapter. Number one, the sign is a demonstration of his true identity as the Son of God. The sign displays, does it not, his deity. Who could do that? Only God in the flesh. He has power over the grave. He has power over death. He is Lord over death and the grave. But at the same time, it shows that. It also is a revelation of his humanity. His love, his care, his tenderness in chapter 11, is breathtaking. It is amazing. It is humbling. He is so tender with this family. So number one, at least I'd say it points to his identity, his deity. Secondly, it obviously points to a greater sign than Lazarus' resurrection. It points to the greater sign and to the greater miracle of even that, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope we get there next week. Look at 11.25. Remember when he said there to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. What a statement. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he, it says there, shall he live. And so he's the resurrection. And so here, this final, this climactic sign points to the resurrection not only of Lazarus, but even greater, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 12, you will see that Mary had anointed his feet for his burial. And so we're beginning to move into the Passion Week, and it's going to say that not only did Lazarus die and was raised, but the Lord Jesus Christ died for you and was raised on that third day. In other words, the tomb can't hold Lazarus, But it can't hold him either. He's Lord of the resurrection. Thirdly, this miracle is given to increase your faith. To increase your faith. Glance down at the scripture in verse 15. Jesus said there, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Not there when he died is the thought. So that, here's the purpose, you may believe. He wrote this text. In other words, to identify him, certainly to begin to forecast the Lord's resurrection, but thirdly, to increase your faith. J.C. Ryle, the great man of God, said of this text, he said, for grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, nothing was ever written like it. I believe that. Now today, what I want you to do with me is I want you to see the characters of this dramatic story. And, and when I talk about the characters of this dramatic account or story, GCV, I, I want you to know this is not Hollywood that we're talking about here. These are not special effects, okay, created, if you will, on a CAD screen. These are not computer-generated graphics, these are not stunts. These are not sounds. This is true. This is the word of God. This is not fantasy. And maybe I should say that. There's a couple liberal guys who aren't worth reading. It doesn't really matter. They might say that Lazarus raised or rose, if you will, from the dead. What really matters is that Jesus Christ can rise in your own heart. And it's just all that foo-foo stuff. You know what I mean? This is the truth of Scripture. This is not fantasy. So let me set the scene for you in 11, 1 through 16, and let me show you the characters here that unfold. There's four of them. One of them you're going to meet is Lazarus. You're going to meet, secondly, some sisters called Mary and Martha. Thirdly, you're going to, of course, meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ in that order. And then fourthly, you're going to meet the disciples. And of course, and maybe I should invert that you're going to meet the disciples thirdly, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would know that, of course, in the scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ is the most preeminent of all of those who are revealed. Let's look at these four characters that emerge that reveal God's glory in the death of Christ through the resurrection of the dead. And then as we close, I want to give you a few reminders that you can take home practically what this means. But let's look at the first character. The first character is the condition of Lazarus. The condition of Lazarus. Look at 1a. It says now a certain man was ill and it just identifies him as Lazarus. Now, here's that first character. It's this man. Now, as we look at that name, I don't want you to confuse that with the other Lazarus in the scripture that's revealed in Luke 16. That is the poor man named Lazarus who was laid at the gate. Remember, he died and went to heaven. That's a different story. And, and I think we know that because in 11.1, this is Lazarus very clearly of Bethany. And when you begin to put those accounts together, there's way too many differences there. So don't confuse them with that Lazarus. What's interesting about this miracle, and I always pause there as I study, is only John records this amazing miracle. In other words, it's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only mentioned here is Lazarus in chapter 11. He will be mentioned in chapter 12 in all of the New Testament. And to be frankly honest with you, there's not much that we know about Lazarus. And I'm fine with that because it's not really about him. It's not really, he's not really the main character, though he's revealed in it, okay? I mean, it is entirely likely that Lazarus had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in the Bible here that Jesus loved him. And so we do believe that he was a believer. We certainly knew that Mary and Martha were, as we'll see. But Lazarus itself is a name, obviously. And it's a common name among the Jews. His name is a shortened form of the Hebrew Old Testament name, named Eleazar. It is really a familiar Old Testament Hebrew name. His name just simply means this, he whom God assists, or he whose help is God. And certainly that's going to be true here. Now look at the text again in verse 1, just as we set this scene here. Now a certain man was ill, it was Lazarus, and it mentions there of Bethany or from Bethany. There's two different Bethanies in the Scripture, okay? This is a different Bethany than what we call the Bethany that was beyond the Jordan. This Bethany, spoken here in 11.1, is just east of the Mount of Olives. Maybe just about two miles from Jerusalem. In fact, I'm going to be contacting Doug Bookman to go on another trip to Israel. Would you like to go? Hopefully, Lord willing, possibly, in January of 2020. So I just say that to save your money so that we could go together. I've been there. It's, last, it's about just two miles. Bethany's just about two miles from Jerusalem. It's east of the Mount of Olives. Now, I want to remind you when it speaks of that. Look back or look on that same page at the end of chapter ten. Do you remember that Jesus had went away? It says in ten forty that he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptized at first, and there he remained. Now, we believe where he went away, he went away, as it says there in the text, to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing. Where's that? That is also known as Bethany. And so as they sought to take his life, at the end of chapter 10, he removes himself from Judea and Jerusalem area. He goes about 100 miles northeast to Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's interesting, look at chapter 10 as we close that chapter out in 42, many Believed in him there. Now, just so we know, there's a difference between that place. Look back at 11.1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And it wants to identify that place, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Okay? And so he's just helping identify the place. The Lord often, in other pieces of the gospel, he would stay in Bethany when he was in Jerusalem. It says that in Matthew 21, Matthew chapter 26. The, the, the name for Bethany, the city, it means house of suffering. And so if you can grab this picture, while he's in Bethany beyond the Jordan, he gets word that Lazarus is sick. He is in critical condition. I would say that he's in the ICU. And so I take you from the character or the condition of Lazarus to the second character or characters. It's the concerned sisters. It's Mary and Martha. Okay? Now, you'll see that there. It says it there in verse 1 to the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And I don't want to get into all the history of this. Mary's listed first and her sister Martha. But it's quite clear in other texts that Martha's the older sister It's her home that they would come to. But you say, I know those characters. Yes, you do know those characters because there's color given to that by Luke. You don't have to turn there. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus entered a village, it says there, of a woman named Martha. And Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. But Martha, you remember, was distracted with serving. Luke reveals that. I just want you to know it's those sisters, okay? So you got Lazarus, who's in a critical condition, and you have, secondly, here the concerned sisters. Now, Mary is identified. Look at verse 2. It says in the text it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. And so he recalls this account. For us as his readers, that account happened. We'll look at that in the next chapter, in chapter 12, where Mary actually did that. And these concerned sisters sent a dispatch to our Lord. Look at the text in verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I love that statement there. Lord, he whom you love is ill. I love the fact that these two sisters called him Lord. He is their master, and so should it be today for all of us. And they sent word to our Lord. It's their brother, thinking possibly because of his love, Jesus would come to Lazarus. I mean, he's in critical condition. He's at the point of death. He is, as I mentioned in the other Bethany, about 100 miles away And the sisters say, look at it in verse 3. He whom you love is ill. I think it's quite touching. The sisters sin for Jesus. Watch this. Not based on their love for Lazarus. It's not even based on their love for the Lord. It's rather on the Lord's love for Lazarus. It's intriguing. He whom you love is ill. Now, I don't want to get too far, too deep. Sometimes we make too much of this. Different words for love. There's agape love. we will use that in a moment, but he doesn't use that one here. He, who, he whom you love is ill. He whom, and the word there for love is phileo, phileo. And all I would say is our Lord had a deep friendship with him. It's obvious from verse 3. Look at verse 5. It says there, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, okay? Look at verse 35. You remember, at the grave of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. If you will, look down at verse 36. The Jews said, see how he loved him. It's touching. Oh, he's deity, but he's a man. Oh, he's deity, but he has relationships. Maybe that's just to say he's not a machine. He cares about people. He loves people. He has friendship with people. He loved this family. And so he whom you love, the sisters say, is ill. So well, what happened? Well, look at the text in verse 4 there. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When he said this illness does not lead to death, he didn't mean that Lazarus is not going to die. He just simply meant that death will not be the final outcome of this illness. In other words, Lazarus' death was not, at this point, a permanent death. His, His, if you will, raising his death, his resurrection, would reveal the wonder of God's glory. I think it's much like the man who was born blind. Remember that? It is not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God in John 9, 3 might be displayed in him. Now, what's amazing is look at verse 4 again. He did it. This illness does not lead to death. It is for, watch the the parallel here. It is for the glory of God, God's glory. John says, so that, Jesus speaking, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I love that statement. In other words, here, the Father and the Son are mutually committed to the, each other's glory. It's really kind of amazing. And you see this in other texts that are revealed. Look over just a couple pages at John chapter 13. Let me just touch on this for a moment. In John chapter 13 and verse 31, when he had gone out... He said, now is the son of man, there's our phrase, glorified, and God is glorified in him. I love that. And if God, verse 32, is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You have these kind of statements in the scripture. The amazing if you will, uh, parallel theme of God's glory, but the God being glorified that the Son might be glorified, and the Son glorifies God in all that he's given to do. In fact, look over at chapter 14 in verse 13 in that powerful statement, whatever ask, you ask in my name, I will do that. And here it is again, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, beloved, as you turn back to John 11 for God's glory to shine forth, Lazarus must first die. Now, just to add this note here, look what the this, this scripture says in 5, 11, 5, It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I love that little touch. It's touching here. He loved this entire family. I mean, here he is, God. It's revealing this in a sign, but he, he loved this family and he 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 was close to them but watch what happens somewhat intriguing look at verse 6 so when he heard <laughs> just read it like it is that lazarus was ill look at this unbelievable statement in 11:6 he stayed 2 days longer in the place where he was and i thought what He gets the dispatch. The one Lord, and it's interesting that Mary and Martha weren't cranking on him. I mean, what I mean cranking on him. You notice they didn't tell him what to do. They didn't tell him what even the nature of the issue. Maybe there's more revealed in the dispatch. But the one whom you love is ill. Now, you would think when he heard that, he would immediately, what, go. We have a little statement We trust in pastoral ministry, whatever the difficulty hopefully is, if you know, you go. If you know, you go. But it says here in 6, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You'd ask the question, is he indifferent? Well, no. Just said in verse 5 that he loved them. You say, does he care? Well, we know that he loves them. You say, well, what's going on here? In fact, glance down in chapter 11, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so here, there's a number of things going on. But one of the things I'd want to say to you, why did he wait? Why did he wait? Well, there's reasons as to possibly why he waited. Maybe we can ask him unmistakably when we get to heaven. But it could have been that he waited because there's a number of people who believe that once the dispatch went out, once the dispatch got to Jesus, he died immediately. And Jesus in his full omniscience knew that Lazarus had died, so there was no immediate rush. Some believe that. could be very well taken. You say, well, why? Because it took maybe a day for the dispatch to get there. He dies. Our Lord knows that omnisciently. He waits two days. And then he said later in this text, let's go back to Judea. And it takes him a day to get back. And by that time, Lazarus had been in the grave four days. Could be. Could could be that. But I think there's something else going on here. Did you know that the Jews believed that a dead man's spirit hovered. Do you say hovered or hovered? I say hovered, I think. Hovered. If I said hovered, I still think I would be right. But it hovered over the body. Did you know this? The Jews believe this up to about three days. In other words, they believe that someone died, was put in the tomb, if you will. And I've been into these tombs in Jerusalem. Amazing, some of the caves that are there. And they believed even though someone was encased in one of those tombs that the body hovered from two to three days. I think it's significant that he waited. Beloved, I think he waited to reveal the glory of God. I think he revealed, I mean, who can raise a guy four days from uh, the grave? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he waits. There's no question if he raised this one on four days who he is. So you got the critical condition of Lazarus. You have the concerned sisters. Thirdly, you have the careful disciples. The careful disciples. Look at verse 7. Then after this, you say, after what? Verse 7. Well, after two days, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Here are the careful disciples, probably the fearful disciples. Now, you remember that as I painted last week or a couple of weeks ago in chapter 10, four different times in John's gospel, they sought to murder Judea excuse me, murder Jesus in that area of Judea four different times. And now he wants to go back there? I I think the careful disciples are saying this. Wait a minute, Jesus. You want to leave the area where we are, where many were believing in you, and you want to go back to the place to see Lazarus where they are trying to stone you and arrest you and so forth and kill you. You want to risk your life near Jerusalem? Look what Jesus answered in a proverbial saying. He said, Are there not, verse 9, 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Why? Because he sees the light of the world. What, is, what does this mean? I think he's just taking a reference here. It was common knowledge that the Jewish people believed that the Jewish day was basically 12 hours. And then at night, they stopped working. That's the literal, just physical part of it. But there's a deeper meaning here. It's this. I think it's hard to see. As long as the son does the father's will during the daylight of his ministry, he would be safe in the father's will. He is, after all, the light of the world. Jesus is saying, God has ordained all of my days. He said many times earlier that my hour has not yet, what, come. As long as you're with me, you're going to be safe. You're going to be kept from stumbling. You say, well, what, what, else? What, what else would he do? Look at verse 12. It says there, or excuse me, look at verse 10. He says, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, the night represents the end of his earthly ministry, at least according to John chapter 12, 35. Those are, these these are the ones that he's talking about who are of the darkness, who don't understand that he's the light of the world. They stumble because the light of the world is not in them. And so after he made these statements, look at verse 11. It says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus, now watch this, has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. He's fallen asleep. And so I'm going to bring you now to hear Jesus becomes the center point. He is of all the accounts, but here's the fourth character. It's the compassion of the Savior. He says here that Lazarus has fallen asleep. It's interesting. You remember earlier in verse 4, he said the illness does not lead to death. And here he says he's fallen asleep. Similar to the words in, Regards to Jairus' daughter, where she was obviously dead, and Jesus said, "The girl is not dead, but she is asleep." He said that in Matthew 9:24. and remember the crowds, when he made that statement, mocked him and laughed at him. Say, so what's going on here? What, what, is, what does this mean in verse 11 that he's fallen asleep? Well, sleep in the New Testament often refers to the death of a believer. It refers to the death of a believer. But the disciples didn't get it. I think you could see these verses that come up. I just remind you of a few. Acts 7.16, 7.60, Stephen falling to his knees, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's getting buried under rocks. And when he said this, he fell, what, asleep. It's it's an expression in the New Testament when a believer dies. 1 Corinthians 11.30. This is why many of you are weak and ill. And then it says in the ESV in 11.30, and some have what? Died? But in the NASB, it says, and some have slept. In other words, they've died. He clearly has died. I think there's another one on the next slide. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die. Sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so sleep is an expression there of the death of a believer. But the disciples said to him, look back at the text in 11.12. They said to him, they don't get it as they often haven't. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will, what? Recover. They didn't get it, did they? They thought that if he's really just sleeping Lord, and he's got a fever, let the guy rest. Let's not go wake him up. And so to be crystal clear, look at the text in verse 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And so they said, then Jesus told them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus has Died. He's died. And so this man whom the Lord loved has died as they dispatch for him. He says, Let's go two days later, and now he has died. But look what Jesus says in verse 15. He said, For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that, we call that a purpose clause, you may believe, but first, let us go to him. In other words, the raising of Lazarus would strengthen the disciples' faith. It would strengthen your faith. And I don't think it's the fact when he said, I was glad that I was not there. It's not that he's rejoicing that he died. We saw that he wept and so forth. But he wanted their, their faith to grow. And so look what he says in verse 15. At the end of 15, he said, but let us Go to him. They're going to go to him. And you know what's going to happen. You're as readers. You know, as I've said, he's going to raise him. But the, you, you still see that the disciples didn't get it. You say, how, how, how so? Look at verse 16. Thomas, he was called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may, what, die with him. Now, there's a whole character sketch here on Thomas that we don't have time for. But he is a very rare combination of doubt, but he's also a combination of devotion. And they're all mixed in one person, and they're called Thomas. In fact, if I said the name Thomas, you would call him what? Doubting Thomas. Some people in the modern vernacular would call him Debbie Downer, okay? That's what Blake would call him. Um... And in other words, he says, listen, Lord, if you're going and you're going to your death, we're going, we're all going to die. But I would tell you this, don't miss this. He did take leadership, didn't he? He wasn't running. He wasn't hiding. He's a rare combination of doubt, but he also is mixed in, the, in with that, a devotion, that love, the Savior. You say, well, what happened? Well, as we shall see in the next weeks, it was amazing. He would raise him, as I said, four days uh, as he was in the grave. But you would agree with me. He came to life, did Lazarus. And then he subsequently, what, died again. I mean, he's been dead, fair, nearly 2,000 years and I submit to you that the greater miracle than raising Lazarus from the dead in his physical life is our future resurrection from the grave eternally and Lazarus's as well, right? I mean, Scripture would affirm to you, Grace Church, that death is not the end. That preacher that I spoke about, who all know his message, absolutely. But the Scripture tell us that there is life beyond the grave. In fact, as I was thinking on this, I thought on every Christian tombstone, maybe it should read, look back in 11.4, that this illness in 11.4 does not lead to, what, death. Can I just highlight a few things for you as you go from this? And we'll pick it up next week. But two crucial things to take away, okay? First, I would say that his death, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as Lazarus, but the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed in order to see God's glory in Christ. I'm going to say it again. Who could do this sign? And the truth here, as we unpack it this week, the weeks to come, the story is here, it's about Jesus. It's not about Lazarus. The story reveals the person and the power of Christ revealed on earth. In fact, I would say this to you, that John 11 is not even really just about an idea called the resurrection. It's about a person. And let me say that knowing this person, who he is and what he did and his identity and the relation to the Father are crucial for you this morning. He is, amen, Lord over death. And I want you to be able to rest in that. And so first I would say, it was revealed to see God's glory in Christ. But secondly, His power provides you with future hope. Future hope. I mean, every age, every human heart struggles with the finality of the grave and the incomprehensibility of death, as we said at the beginning. But praise God, there's hope. Yesterday, as I shared the word at Carol Lane's funeral, a dear woman of God of our church, I had to ask myself, what difference does it make that my Lord has defeated death and rose victoriously. And the answer is, it makes what? All the difference. Listen, if you're here this morning, just by virtue of the Scripture, by virtue of John 11, you don't have to fear death. I think this is where the writer's taken us. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. There Paul says, what is sown He says it's perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Paul says it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. He said it's sown in weakness, but it is, speaking of our body, raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Praise be to God. He has power over the death, He's Lord over the death. There's no other religion that can claim this. In fact, I'll say it to you again. There's only two religions in the whole world. Christianity, which is the grace of God by faith in the person of Christ for eternal salvation. And the second is man's human righteousness to accomplish his own achievement to gain heaven. You need to be about telling people about this powerful God. Remember when Paul said in Philippians 1, to me, he said, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Just seems like everybody's clamoring after what they can do to extend their life. Paul said, to me, to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. He said, my desire, Philippians 1, 21 through 23, is to depart and to be with what? Christ. For that is far, what, better. Listen, some of you have lost a loved one this year. Some of you have lost a child. Some of you have lost a grandparent. Some of you have lost a spouse. But listen, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Jesus said, I'm glad I delayed so that you can believe in my power. And he's going to raise Lazarus. He himself will die. Raise on the third gra- day. And he did that so that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the truth of Scripture is that death is a gateway to the greater life with God and Christ. You know, I said yesterday, Carol Lane was a dear woman of God, wasn't she, if you knew her? Praise the Lord for her faith. And, uh, but she had the wonderful joy I don't mean that tritefully, of passing into glory on Christmas morning to meet her Savior. No more bout with cancer. No more mount, you know, you know, no more mountain to overcome with the oxygen mask. She died in this life, closed her life, and woke in glory. Let me close and just tell you what death will be like for the believer. One who was anxious about death once asked a pastor his name was Pastor Burgrave of Norway. He asked him for an explanation of death. And the pastor told him this story. Here's the story. He said, one day a peasant took his little son with him on a village, actually to visit a village that was some distance away from his home. And as they traveled along the road, they came to a small but swift river, which was spanned by a rickety broken bridge. The wood was rotten. The, f- the rope was frayed. But it was daylight, and the father and son made the crossing without any kind of mishap. But so as often the case, business took longer than anticipated, and it was dusk when the two started out on their journey home. And as they walked along, the little boy remembered the river and the old bridge, and he became very frightened. They had barely made it across in the light of day. How would they be able to cross that turbulent water on the broken bridge in the dark? His father, sensing the anxiety of his little son, lifting him up and holding him close to his chest, carried him in his arms. The boy's fear subsided immediately, and before he knew it, he was fast asleep in his father's arms. And before he knew it, the sun of the new day was streaming through his window, and the boy awoke to discover that he was safe at home in his very own room. And the truth is, beloved, that death is like that. For the follower of Christ, that what you fear most, the river of death, you will cross unafraid because you are asleep in the arms of Jesus. And then when you awake, you will awake in the presence of God. And in that place, there will be no more night. There will be no more fear. The Bible tells us our confidence. Listen, beloved in death has nothing to do with your potential to survive death. It has everything to do with the person and power of Christ who has defeated death for you. And by placing your faith in him, though you die, you shall live again. Jesus and the scriptures tell us that to be true. It says in the book of Revelation 20, think about this place, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, it says there in Revelation 20, shall be no more and neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you know the Savior? Listen, because if you know him, you're going to be given eternal life.